from the experience side, it was mind-blowingly good. And then I knew from the engineering side, looking at through that robotics lens, I was like, hey, we can automate this. We can make a computer do this even better than a person can. And we can also, you know, from that product standpoint, we can take that person in the meeting out from being the director and the producer of that video call to actually being engaged in the meeting and participating themselves. And so it all kind of came together, this concept that, hey, this is a real problem and there's a way to solve this at a price point that is affordable and a package that is nice and consumer-like and approachable. And with that robotics and AI that would allow it to be so well automated that you would need an IT department to support it. Most of us running hybrid meetings are not great at media production, and a poorly placed computer can render a meeting difficult to follow for remote team members. Mark Schnittman, the co-founder and CTO of Owl Labs, chats today about the eureka moment he had that led to the eventual creation of a product, the Meeting Owl, that helps create great video and sound. Enjoy this episode. Mark Schnittman, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks. It's great to be here. All right, right out the gate, I was checking out the website. Your company seems aptly named. The product does look like an owl. But for those who don't know who you are, tell us what is Owl Labs and what does it do? Sure. So let me tell you a little bit first about the company. Uh, We are a Series B startup. Uh, We're about 150 people in size. Uh, We're headquartered in the Boston area. We actually have two offices. But we are a hybrid company. We are currently getting close to 50% uh, within the Boston area and 50% distributed around the country and to some extent around the world as well. Going back a little bit in our history, um, we actually uh, you know, started the company with my co-founder, Max McKeeve, and it was just me and him in my kitchen. Uh, then we hired our first employee on the other side of the country. So we were 33% remote. And that trend continued really smoothly up into the start of the pandemic. We uh, hovered around 40% plus or minus uh, throughout all of those years, not through any uh, intentional maneuver. It was just that we were willing to hire people wherever they were, as long as you know they could do the job. And so uh, once the pandemic started, uh, things, you know, as you can see in our stats, got a little bit more distributed. Now we're about 50-50. Uh, but uh, that's what we are, and we, uh, we, our mission is to make hybrid meetings for hybrid companies as natural and as effective as in-person meetings, and we do that by building hardware and software. All right, so that's the key here. We are a hardware company, and for those of you that have never been to L Labs website or not familiar with the product, I'm going to describe it uh, my way, and then, of course, Mark, <laughs> we definitely want to hear yours. So Mark just said it's a hardware and software component, but it looks like it's a very special camera. It's cylindrical, almost like an Amazon Alexa. It does illuminate. The illuminations make it look like an owl. I'll have to ask you about that in just a moment. And it looks like it's powered by specific software. Now, the brand prop or the value prop that it says it makes it different than like right now I'm using, for example, a Logitech camera that's just mounted on my my my, my uh, computer is that it can provide a 360 degree view seems pretty interesting, but I'd love for you to dive into like, what is the camera? How does it work? What's unique about it? And then of course, I'll definitely want to know how you guys came up with this idea. Ah, uh, well, I'm going to actually start at the end of your question then, if it's all right with you and uh, start with the origin. Yeah, that's fine. Because the origin story really lines up what that value prop is um, and takes us right into the design that you spoke so eloquently about. 
So the origin starts um, really in 2012 when I left uh, the job I was at, which was at iRobot Corporation. Uh, mm. sort of iRobot makes uh, the Roomba. The Roomba. I used to have one, it, but it's very erratic. That's what it's known for more than anything. It's like a very erratic <laughs> vacuum cleaner. That, a mind of its own. Yeah, it's pretty wild, but it does a great job. I mean, we didn't have any complaints about it. Well, I'll give a, a quick shout out and a plug for iRobot because I still have a lot of love. Back in the, the model that you had, it would do something called random bounce, um, which is a whole interesting thing about uh, that being the most effective way to cover space when you don't actually have a map or know where you are. Yeah. But fast forward to modern times, uh, Roombas now uh, map the area, localize themselves on it and clean in a back and forth pattern. So uh, you should check check out a new one. Uh, I think you'd be quite happy. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you know, getting getting back to the Owl Lab story, which I mean, there's a lot of origin in in, yeah. in the iRobot story. It's where you know I grew up as a roboticist, um, which feeds into a lot of how the owl was born and how it operates. Uh, but in 2012, I decided to leave iRobot and join a startup that was located on the West Coast, and this was uh, a really tough decision because I could not leave Boston. Uh, I had a mm -hmm. lot of things keeping me here that just prevented me from making that move out West. But I really liked the people. I really liked the company. They were very excited about me as well. And so they decided to make me an offer that I could work remotely. And let me tell you, in 2012, that seemed insane to me. I'm like, I really <laughs> wanted to do this. I wanted the job, but I was looking at it. I was like, listen, you can work across 3,000 miles for a month, two months, maybe three months. But like, I want a long-term commitment here. I really, you know, when I'm in something, I'm in something. And so um, basically what happened was I decided to take the plunge. I decided to sort of put everything to the side. I'm just like, yeah, let's just give it a try. And the long story short is that I was there for two years and I found out that remote work actually could work. I found out that video conferencing finally was real, even in 2012 with, uh, I don't remember what Google called it at that time. It wasn't Hangouts. It for wasn't Meet. <laughs> I think WebEx was probably the biggest one. I'm thinking back to 2012, WebEx was everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But we were we were just a tiny little startup uh, pre-Series A when I first met them. And so we were on the Google system using whatever Google gave you as part of that Google Apps for Business, I think they called the suite. And it actually worked. You know, one-on-one, -on -one, you could have, you know, you could have good conversations with people. And I discovered that working remotely also worked, even though we were working on a hardware product there. It was a small consumer uh, robot. Um, and all this worked, but the one thing that didn't work was the group meetings. So one-on-one, -on -one, I was totally fine. Uh, but if I was in a, a meeting for a software stand-up or an all-hands meeting or all the other meetings in between that had multiple people on the West Coast, I was completely cut off. You know, I do remember this one time, it was an all-hands meeting, and I spent the whole 45 minutes looking at the CEO's stomach because he had his com <laughs> computer open that was hosting the call was in front of him on a coffee table. It was, you know, it was a startup hip. He was sitting on a couch and the screen was tilted at such an angle that it was just like looking at his stomach. Fortunately, he was an ex-professional uh, rock climber. So he was, in, he was in great shape. That's real nice. <laughs> but like, I was completely cut off from everything that was going on in that meeting. I couldn't follow it when other people talked. I couldn't really hear them. I couldn't really figure out when to interject because I don't see any of the body language. This was just kind of standard issue for um, for that position and you know for remote working at that time. And we tried all sorts of solutions. We bought everything we could get our hands on to improve that experience and nothing really worked. And one day the magic moment happened, which is going all the way in reverse, the most low tech solution possible. I was at a software stand up meeting sitting in Boston in uh, San Francisco. 
there was a computer, a MacBook computer sitting on a stool in the middle of the circle of software engineers. And it was a swivel stool. So one of my coworkers decided on this day, for some reason unknown to everybody, that he was just going to like swivel that stool top around and point the computer's camera and microphone at each person as they spoke. And my head exploded back in Boston. Like after everything we had tried, this was like by far the best experience. It was it was unbelievable. So this like for those who are watching the YouTube video, you'll see this. But on the podcast, I mean, I'm swiveling a chair. Like obviously you can't see the bottom, but you're saying they put the laptop on the chair and that's what they were doing. They were turning it to whoever was talking. That's right. That's where the epiphany came from. That is the epiphany. You know, again, from the experience side, it was just it was mind blowingly good. Uh, and then I knew, you know, from the engineering side, looking at through that robotics lens, I was like, hey, we can automate this. We can make a computer do this even better than a person can. And we can also, you know, from that product standpoint, we can take that person in the meeting out from, you know, being the director and the producer of that video call to actually being engaged in the meeting and participating themselves. And so it all kind of came together, this concept that, hey, this is a real problem. and there's a way to solve this at a price point that is affordable and a package that is nice and you know consumer-like and approachable. And with that robotics and AI that would allow it to be so well automated that you wouldn't need an IT department to support it. And then you know that combined with my own personal experience, again, this was now 2014, but having that experience of two years of really believing that you know in the future, remote work is going to be common and it's going to be successful. So you put that all together. Um, I grabbed Max McKeeve. He was still at iRobot. That's where I know him from. Uh, we went out for a beer and uh, he was uh, foolish enough to agree that we should uh, try and start a company around this idea. So right then there, you have a problem, you see a viable solution. You, you know, Obviously the, the product's changed quite a bit since then. So Max says, hey, I want to do this with you, Mark. Well, let's do it. Let's do it. So now you're agreed. We're going to get going. So I guess next step, prototype. Oh, next step is uh, being naive and not knowing what we're doing. Oh. So um, <laughs> this is a you know, fun little tip for other people maybe uh, going into this. You know, we looked at and we're like, hey, look, we're not just a couple of kids out of college. We have, you know, some years of experience doing engineering and product development. iRobot was, you know, is a pretty good name, pretty cool product, um, all this great stuff. People, you know, investors should believe that we can build this thing. We just need the funding so that we can get started. And so we put together the pitch deck, we put together a little faked up demo video, and we went out and, you know, not knowing anything about how you even fundraise, you know, how you even meet people, because uh, we're, we're not in San Francisco, we're not in Silicon Valley, we're in Boston, and it's, you know, a little bit of a different scene. And so we spent a whole bunch of months going out there trying to tell people, hey, look at this nice slide deck and this video, we can make this thing, give us millions of dollars. And what we found out was nobody was going to do that. We needed to build that first really, really crappy prototype and put it down in front of them to give them a little flavor of what that, that, that future product would be and what the company would be formed around, and also to prove to them that we could actually do it. We weren't just talking. So that was the first step. Uh, second, not quite the second step, but uh, to answer your question from, uh, from the beginning about, hey, where did this, I can see where the owl name come from, how'd that happen? That's kind of funny story, which was that this was like before we had built anything, this was back in those pitch deck days. We're like, hey, well, we need a name for our company to put on these slides. And we spent just what seemed like too much time sitting around in the kitchen, throwing out names for ideas. Uh, one of them that uh, didn't stick, thank God, was Hubbub. Um, <laughs> I remember that as our idea for the company name. 
And I remember we took a walk and we we're just like talking about, you know, trying to brainstorm and then thinking like, what are we doing? We are wasting so much time trying to pick a name and we, we need to, we need to get funding. We need to build this thing. We need to build the product. We need to build a company. Anyway, long story short, somewhere along the lines, and I don't know if it was Max or myself who thought of it, neither of us remember, which is really quite wonderful, I think, actually, and describes our relationship very well. Uh, you know, very, very lack of ego. Don't know who came up with it, but one of us suggested OWL, because OWLs can turn their heads all the way around. Yep. They have great vision, they have great hearing, and they're really wise. And so we went with it. And it turns out, like all these years later, it was a really good call and, uh, you know, everything around the branding, the look and the feel of the product, it all came together around that owl name. So it turns out that was really good time spent back then. But at the time, we definitely were like, oh, are we just like procrastinating and avoiding things we should really be working on? Yeah, I'm trying to, when you said that, I was thinking of the other animals that could possibly see a lot of things, like maybe chameleon. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and chameleon, a little little long, maybe. Yeah, I, I, truthfully, and then we got the labs because, you know, we we knew that we would never, you know, especially back then, be able to get owl.com, yeah. you know, and that it would be hard to trademark and do other things like that. That was where, you know, having a little experience, you know, out in the, the world as a professional was helpful. So, we you know, we, we added that labs to it to round it out and make it a little bit more unique. Yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about the technical challenges that came to making this come to life. Because, you know, at the time, I mean, even actually right now, when I think about it, like 3D cameras or 360 degree cameras, um, you know, there's got to be some type of rendering, you got to be speed, it's got to have some type of directional sensor that can tell who's actually talking. I'm assuming that's the whole point of the product is going to turn to the person talking. I'm picturing that time frame, right? That 2014, 2015, 16 time frame of meetings. Even if you were at a big company and you had a conference meeting, it was typically a centrally mounted camera, typically to the front center of the room. It couldn't capture the peripherals very well and really couldn't capture the back. Like everyone in the back looked like a dot. You know what I mean? Like every single time. Yeah. And the microphones of these rooms were always centrally located. They were supposed to have mini mics. Like you saw those tables that would have mini mics at every, um, mm -hmm. like every three seats or something like that. But then those didn't work. They seemed to not work because you could hear one person, but not another. And it was never clear if they could hear you. So there's a lot of like logistical spatial challenges you're really trying to solve here with, uh, like you said, with hardware and software. How did you two go about saying, okay, this is how we're going to put this thing together. Cause you got the cool shape. That's a killer design. I love it. But it still has to work. Yeah, yeah. So that's the big thing. <laughs> <laughs> it still has to work. Yeah, you're right. And um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, everything about uh, the engineering of it was incredibly difficult. And that's why, you know, when we set out at the very beginning, we we didn't really have a way to build a quick prototype to show people, hey, look, here it is, because it was so new. It was so different and so challenging. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit. Um, I will back up a little bit and tell you a little bit more about you know what the owl is, how, what its value proposition is. Yeah, you described it really well. It is a three-in-one camera, speaker, and microphone, all 360 degrees in a very simple package. So it only has two ports on it. One is to provide it AC power. Uh, so that it can run itself and have enough power to make a nice loud sound for the people in the room. <laughs> and the other is a USB cable. And you take that USB cable, you plug it in from the OWL to your host computer that's going to be running the call. And what's beautiful about the system is that USB interface is truly the U is for universal, and it is universal. To the computer, the OWL looks just like a dumb web camera from 20 years ago, uh, because all of the magic happens within the OWL itself. 
And that's really powerful because it means you don't need to install any drivers on your computer. You don't need to do any setup. Uh, every computer, every operating system has a driver that comes with it that knows how to use a simple web camera. But of course, the OWL is anything but simple. It's simple to use, but in terms of what it does, it's incredibly complex. So you plop it on the table. Uh, generally, it goes towards the middle of the table, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit biased towards the side where the TV is to help with your your eye contact. But really, what's beautiful about it is you can put it down anywhere you want in any environment, and that's where all that robotics and AI comes in. So you plop it down there, and it's got these sensors on it. Two powerful sensors. One is an eight microphone array that's around the circumference of the owl that lets it hear in all directions at the same time and also pick up sound really well when folks speak, no matter where they are. And then you've got that camera that's also 360 degrees. So unlike my friend in San Francisco had to rotate the computer's camera with a narrow field of view to point at the right person at the right time, the owl can actually see and hear everyone in full 360 at all times. So then what it does is it uses its processing power and all those algorithms to create a model of the room. So it fuses together uh, audio data coming in from those microphones that can help localize where what direction is sound coming from. But if you just triggered off sound um, alone, somebody puts down their coffee mug or opens a bag of chips and yeah. it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be popping up. Too many bag. false positives. It would just be like erratic. Just yeah, <laughs> totally erratic. And that is how, you know, uh, camera cameras from the olden days, you know, maybe the nineties, maybe the early two thousands, there were cameras that would swivel themselves around like that and move mechanically. But just like you said, erratic, very distracting for people on the on both sides of the call when it's making mistakes, all that jazz. Okay, so what do we do? We take that camera that's got this beautiful 360 degree view of the room, and we use a lot of computer vision to look for features that will tell us, hey, you know, this is what the room looks like. This is where the people are. This is a, you know, and combined with that uh, audio data, we can make a model of the room. So now the owl's got this idea of what's going on in the room, where things are. And when people have their conversation, it's able to, you know, switch, you know, snap between different people at different times. But again, unlike my friend rotating that computer, the owl can look in any two directions at a time that it wants to. It can even look in any three directions. And so we have at the, you know, the standard view is the top of the, uh, the display has got a panoramic strip that shows 360 degrees of the room. So that gives everybody in the call the context of who's in the room. You'll never be surprised that somebody was there that you didn't know about. <laughs> You'll never say that thing about your boss you didn't mean to say. Um, and then down on the bottom portion, the bottom you know, 80% of the screen, we call that the stage. And that's where we dynamically show you what's going on in the meeting. Basically, as people start talking, we slide them into that stage area. And again, the nice thing is we can look in multiple directions at the same time. So in order to provide context and body language, we try to keep as many people on that stage as we have real estate on the screen. So we'll put three people side by side, kind of like you might see uh, pundits on CNN or something like that. Okay. So I want to describe, because I'm watching the video as you were talking, uh, it's literally to the about left of me. I want to describe this for our audience so they can understand this. And then please, Mark, slap mm -hmm. me, correct me if I'm wrong. So this camera is constantly basically 360 degrees. There's cameras pointed at everybody. It's not actually moving. Like when I first saw the thing, I thought it was moving. It's not moving. It's capturing everything at the same time. But the software is almost like a producer's box, uh, the producer's box inside of like a live uh, broadcast. Like it's choosing which screens to display, which cameras to display, which microphones to deliver in the presentation so that you as a 
a viewer, a viewer of this this programming, you're seeing the most the best views. You're always seeing the person who's talking. It's not moving. There's no motion sickness. Like the things aren't moving around all the time. You're just hey, like you said, the slide effect. Hey, this person's now talking. They slide. They take the stage. And then you always get that 360 to strip. That's how this thing is working. It's using software to say which of these eight cameras to show versus, um, you know, what I originally thought because of the swivel chair, I think, you know, my mind was there. I was thinking that this camera is like constantly, like, you know, like the eyes in the squid games. Like it was constantly like, <laughs> yeah. doing that kind of deal. <laughs> no, no. So your intuition is strong and, and your description is spot on. So it is a camera with no moving parts. Um, and we, that's because we don't want to, two, two reasons. And you hit on them. One, we don't want to distract the people in the room with something that's moving because, you know, <laughs> humans are very well tuned to pay attention to, to motion for our survival. Um, and likewise, we don't want to have motion blur. Uh, so if your camera that's panning yep. around, you're going to have motion blur, you're going to make people sick. And then, of course, that last bit, being able to see in all directions, lets us show multiple directions at the same time. This is all very important, um, again, for the... Uh, the feel that the product gives the people that are on the remote side of the call, it makes them feel like they're in the middle of the meeting, not that they're watching the meeting. And why is that? Well, it's it's just something you mentioned before. The traditional setup puts a camera above the TV or below the TV looking down the room. So yeah. its view looks like a bowling alley. And the people <laughs> watching the call, they are literally watching the meeting from the wall. They are watching it happen. It's like watching the you know the crappiest sitcom ever about a boring meeting. <laughs> and you take you take the meeting owl perspective. We put that in the middle of the table. So now your perspective as a remote user is you're sitting in the middle of the table. You're in the middle of the action as people talk across the table or in whatever direction. You're in the middle of it. You're seeing their faces. You're seeing their re their reactions, and you aren't watching it from the outside. And it makes all the difference in the world in terms of making an experience that is immersive. Yeah. And I would imagine as a person in the meeting, you're probably paying more attention because you, you know that you're on camera. I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel <laughs> like I would be because I used to always hate that when I would do presentations and I see someone on their cell phone, I always wanted to call them out and be like, yo, you clearly not listening. You should leave. And as I got older, I would dismiss people. But <laughs> oh, I, lo I love that. I'm right there with you. And likewise, for the people on the remote end. Uh, because again, you don't want too much motion. You don't want unnecessary motion. You don't want blur, but because that stage area is dynamic and it's highlighting different people as they speak, it's much easier for you to stay engaged in the meeting yeah. because again, you're not watching the static view. Uh, so yeah, very powerful on both sides. So now, now I want to talk to you about like developing the product, because as with any product development, you typically need a lot of customer feedback. The features it has today, were those always the goal that you and your team were thinking from the very beginning? It's like, hey, we're going to use multiple cameras, multiple mics, and we're going to use software to control what is displayed to the stage. Was that always the original intent or did it only come about through like customer loops, feedback, things like that? Well, that's funny. So yes, and mostly, but not entirely. I will say the very first thought that uh, we had when thinking of the idea was, hey, maybe people come and they put their cell phone into a gizmo on the table and the gizmo, you know, can figure, you know, do the same sort of AI robotics that the meeting owl does, but we'll use their, their phone and pivot it around. We eliminated that idea for the you know two of the things we talked about. We didn't want the motion, well, a few of the things. We didn't want the motion blur. We didn't want the motion. We 
realized that you wouldn't be able to switch from one person to another fast enough. So we threw that out. Mm-hmm. The next incarnation of the idea is very much what you what you see in the meeting now, believe it or not. How did we get there? Um, first thing was my personal experience. You know, I was living it. I was customer zero. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just like, hey, um, we want to start a company. What, what can we think of for an idea? What could make us a bunch of money? Like I was living that life for two years. So as customer zero, I had a lot of you know, personal insight. Second thing I did was I called up about 20 friends that I knew that even that was back in 2014. I think I found 20 people that worked remotely, either part-time or full-time, or were in a situation like a friend of mine who was a college professor who would collaborate with people that were offsite a lot. And I, I interviewed all those people, um, not telling them what the product concept was, but asking them what their problems were. And you know that is a key key access for approaching product development from from that product side is not coming to people and saying, "Hey, do you like my solution? Do you want to buy it? How much will you pay me for it?" <laughs> like, tell me about your problems. Tell me what's not working for you in your life, and then you take that back and figure out, like, okay, well, how can we solve those problems? So I interviewed a bunch of friends, and I found out that there was commonality. It seemed like I was not the only one with this problem. So we put all that together. And yeah, the idea was very much the meeting owl that you see. I will say one thing that we didn't anticipate off the bat was that panoramic strip. So because of that experience of the computer swiveling around, I always imagined it was going to you know, just be those close-ups of the people, that stage area. And the first working prototype that we built used two web cameras. And you just plugged in two web cameras into the same computer and you know, stuck them wherever you wanted to. And then the computer ran some software. And Max and I used that to sort of test out the the initial concept with some real people. So we would do, you know, Google calls, but we would clip one camera to my computer screen and one camera to his computer screen. And we'd sit, you know, in the same room, maybe at 90 degree angles. And what people kept asking us, like almost without fail was, hey, where are you guys? Like, where are you guys each located? They assumed, even though we were coming in through that same video feed, they assumed that we were in different locations physically in part because the backgrounds behind us weren't the same and in part because they couldn't see us so we learned from this is people want the context they want that context of the room they don't want disembodied heads or anything like that and so that's when we added in that panoramic strip as a a key feature gotcha we're obviously doing a remote call uh doing a podcast right now i'm thinking myself like do i look like a floating head yeah pretty much i do um (laughs) the use case the intended use case for what you're doing is typically probably and i'm making assumptions here so if i'm wrong certainly correct me i would assume that most you know like it's got to be a big company because a big company is going to be someone that has multiple conference rooms of course a small company does as well but like so you have probably you have a direct consumer model. Like if I go online, I can purchase an Alpro. Um, you also have possibly like, I guess you got to be like a channel partner or something like that. Cause like the big companies, they tend to buy through like suppliers. You know what I mean? Like they don't, I always say my wife's at Cisco, of course, our sponsor Salesforce. Like if, if I want to upfit the conference rooms, I don't bring out my credit card. You know what I mean? I have to go through like supplier portal and all that stuff. Like, did you, and you worked at a big company. So immediately, what were you thinking? Like, how do I get this into the hands of the customer? Step one, get some feedback. That's fantastic. I think I have a working prototype. Now you got to sell it. You're going direct to consumer. Were you going right to the big companies right out the gate? Or did you say direct to consumer is less friction, less money, but it's less friction. And then as we perfect it, then we'll go through the channel route. Yeah. Once again, your intuition is spot on. So we did start um, with uh, direct sales from our website and then, you know, quickly moved 
and to Amazon as just a great way to distribute the product you know, to a lot of people. And yeah, those tend to go out to smaller companies, uh, but it's a great way to get started because you, know, you also know from those big company experiences, in order to get them to you know, change over the technology in their conference room or anywhere else, <laughs> yeah. that's a big process, right? You're talking yeah. months, if not years of, you know, you know, everybody taking a look at a thing, kicking the tires, thinking about it, getting distracted, coming back. So it's a big process. When we could sell direct to the consumer through our website or, you know, go through Amazon, people are able to just come and snap it up. And to your point, that's what we want. We want to get those owls in those early days out to those first users and get the feedback so that we can iterate. So, you know, in your last question, I described all the things that we kind of knew about going into it. But of course, there's a million things that we've adjusted um, yeah. since it's been out in the field, like tons of user feedback. Um, and we incorporate that in um, something I didn't mention earlier is the OWL is uh, it's got Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. So it is Wi-Fi enabled. It can be connected to your network. And with that, we're able to do over the air software updates, um, provide you, you analytics, things like that. So we're always updating all the time. So getting out to those uh, customers as quick as possible is really powerful. Something else we did was the price point. Um, we kept it under $1,000. Uh, and the thinking there was that we wanted people, even in bigger companies, to be able to expense it, basically, or use their own uh, purchasing authority as you know the leader of a, of a particular team or group. So we had people being able to buy it um, directly from us. And then because it is, you know, it's very, because there's no calibration, no setup, you can just plop it down. People are able to bring it uh, to conference rooms with them if it was just for their team at a bigger company, for example. So it was a great way to get started. Keeping that price in the spot where people could make that purchase uh, quickly and easily was really valuable. And then, yeah, we do work with the channel now as well um, and kind of continue to move in that direction. Just to your point, because as a company, we need to grow. Uh, we need to get bigger and bigger companies using bigger and bigger deployments. Uh, but we've got, um, like, we, we cross the range, like I like to say, from avocado farmers to Fortune 100 <laughs> companies um, and everything in between. So, Mark, you just mentioned something. I mean, I figured, but I didn't, I didn't want to put words in your mouth, which is the ability to do over the airwave software updates. Because this is something that is true when we hear about many different scaling consumer product companies, software companies, obviously, even at enterprise, it's, it's software has a special place where it, can, of course, can be updated over the airwaves. So how fast and how important was it to get those real feedback loops so that you can deploy updates? Were you guys approaching it like, hey, let's gather all these requests, pull them together? Like, how, I would love to understand the process of how you were going to go put these together because everything we read about customers is like, yes, you got to listen to the customer, right? Number one. And then number two, they don't know what they want. <laughs> so, so, so I'm sure you were getting feedback loops that you're like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't think we should do this. Yeah. So talk about how you were, how you were prioritizing, talk about how you were, you know, deeming which was the most valuable. And of course, how fast you were rapidly deploying code to say like, add this feature, whatever the case may be. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in terms of figuring out what things would go in and when, um, which is always an ongoing process. It is a lot of the same stuff from those early days. It is collecting that feedback. So we send out, you know, classic NPS survey that goes out to our customers sometime, you know, actually a number of points in time after they've purchased. And one of the, you know, in addition to asking them, you know, how likely they are to recommend the product, which is the classic NPS question, we also ask them, hey, if if you could wave a magic wand and have the owl do one thing that it doesn't do now, what would it be? And so that gives us a great database of what are people saying their pains are? And 
how common are they? Is it just like a couple of people here and there, or is it, you know, pretty pervasive or pretty good group of people? And then the other thing is following up by actually talking to people because people just writing down a sentence or a sentence fragment usually in a survey yeah. is one thing, but you really have to ask the questions behind the question. So, you know, sometimes people would say, um, Hey, I really, you know, I really wish that it had a battery. And okay, that's that's great. Are you going to be happy when you're running off of that battery and halfway through your meeting, the thing dies no. and your no. your call is disrupted? <laughs> so really, what I want to do is like talk to you and find out, hey, why do you want to have a battery? And maybe that's really about portability, perhaps. And then it's like, okay, well, maybe a battery is something we could do, but maybe there's other things we could do. Maybe we could provide a carrying case. Maybe we could make the cabling lighter and, you know, more compact. Mm. I don't know. Uh, we, we yeah. you know, I'm just sort of making things up. But like, I think that's the importance of actually talking to people. It's good to have some quantitative data that tells you kind of what big trends are, but then you really, I think it's really important to do a lot of qualitative interviewing to find out what are people, what are they really saying? What do they really mean? Okay, so then once we've got these things that we want to do, and I'll give you one example. We talked about that panorama yeah. and how it wasn't part of the original design pre-launch. Max and I just never thought that this, the full 360 was something that mattered. Then we found out that it mattered. Then we get the product out there, and after you know a number of years of it being in the market, well, we've got enough people saying that they have some environments where they don't want to show the whole room. Because, mm. you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's messy, you know, maybe, there, there's a million reasons. <laughs> yeah. And it's not everybody, but eventually we're like, you know what, this is a big enough group of people that we're going to make it an optional switch that people can turn on and off in the product. Cause we're not getting rid of it. Cause there's an important reason we put it in there and yeah. most of the people want it on, but there's a big enough bulk of people that like they have a, you know, they have reasons that they want to be able to turn off. So that's the kind of thing um, where we would you know, use that feedback to make a decision. So there's a case where feedback both made us put the panorama in and made us give people the option to take it out. Yeah. So then in terms of deploying things, this is actually pretty interesting. Um, and it was something I kind of, uh, I don't know, I think I figured, figured out over time, didn't quite realize until we got into it. So you've got a connected device. And so that means that you can push software all the time. Yep. Uh, we see this all the time in uh, pure software, like uh, web applications and things like that. They're changing like while you're using it, <laughs> you know, something might change. Oh, yeah. And I, it took me a while to kind of fully get my head around this. Like, why can't, because I guess like the stepping back a moment, it's like, we can't do that for the meeting now. And I'm like, why can't we do, do it at that kind of pace for the meeting now? And it's because this is a piece of hardware that's on live video calls. And if we change something while you're in the middle of the meeting, and it messes things up for you, you know, that's that's catastrophic. If it's a sales call, people would freak out. Like the sales reps would go right to their VP of sales, right to IT, like, yo, get this camera out of here. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we might, uh, likewise, because it is a piece of hardware that has to be, you know, connected to the internet, somebody might unplug it and, you know, put it back in the cabinet if they're the kind of team that's moving it from place to place. Or, you know, maybe the network goes down for a moment. So now if I did a software update, I broke your owl in some way, and now it's not connected to the internet anymore for whatever number of reasons. Even if I made a fix, it can't get to the owl. And so that's very different than a cloud, you know, cloud software that's yeah. like purely in the cloud, like, you know, your, your Google Docs or whatever. Or, or let's take Facebook, something that's even a less critical. Facebook can make a change, if oh, they yeah. break something about, you know, how your newsfeed is displaying, one, it's not the end of the world. And two, 10 minutes later, they can you make another change to the software that fixes it. 
And you're guaranteed to get the change because the change isn't on your computer, it's in the cloud and it, it can't be missed. But when you've got a physical piece of hardware that needs to be actively connected to the internet in order to receive updates, you have to be much, much more careful. So we, we kind of struck a balance between you know, getting people new features as quick as we could, but doing really, really thorough testing to make sure that we never put out anything that was going to break the experience. And so, you know, back when we were a smaller company, that meant updates were roughly quarterly. Now that we have more engineers, more SQA, bigger team, we're, uh, we're putting out updates uh, once a month, roughly. That is awesome. But I'm assuming Alan's got more products to make hybrid work better. I know there's more companies all the time now talking about, like you said, hybrid workforce. They might not be making everyone come back. There are, of course, certain businesses that can't afford to have people remote. So they never have the option. And I think getting a more connected experience is probably going to be important to them as well because they are competing for people that can't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Every worker that works at a, at a job that can't do remote, they're of course going to be potentially tempted by someone who, who can. So getting any type of connection, connectivity is going to be, is going to be big it, and that's not going to change. For yourself, how do you envision your company maybe the next five, 10 years? What other types of products? What do you think or what problems need to be solved, I guess, is a great way to say it. You don't have to tell me what products you're making, but would love to hear your vision for what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I will start a little bit in the now term and the near term and then yeah. uh, slide out to that future future because there's some stuff I can talk about that I think is pretty cool. So that Wi-Fi, we, we talked about, hey, there's Wi-Fi on this device. You can connect to the internet. You can get over-the-air updates. That's cool. But there's something else that Wi-Fi lets you do. It lets you talk to other devices within the room. And so we have a, a new technology that we call Owl Connect. And Owl Connect is, lets you uh, create an ecosystem of Owl Labs products in your conference room that all know about each other and all can work together. And we're, you know, this is a, we put out version 1.0 of this thing right now. So that's like, that's the, the, the right now. Uh, and I'll describe that a little bit and then we can talk about where that goes. So for the right now, first thing you can do is you can take two meeting Owl Pros and you can put them on a table in a conference room that's maybe a bit bigger. So maybe a conference room that's 10 people, 12 people, 14 people. Plot these on the table wherever you want, uh, but, you know, generally along the middle of the table, spread out, and they will wirelessly connect together on their own private network. So they're not connected to the LAN, so you don't have to worry about any security concerns there. They're their own private network, which means you don't have to worry about performance issues from collisions with other things that are going on on the network. And now these two devices work as one. So you get the sort of the same kind of experience that a single meeting owl provides you, but over a bigger area. It's like Sonos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one, one of the owls, you still plug into the host computer with USB. That one we call the primary. The other one automatically becomes the secondary and they work together. So now not only do you have one 360 camera, 360 microphone array, 360 speaker, you've got two of them. And, uh, you know, the way we see things is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate experience will be when you have sensors that are close to all of the people. So now what we do is we put these together. They use all of that AI and robotics intelligence to figure out not just who to show, but what angle to show them at. Mm. So if I'm looking up towards the TV, it's going to switch to that owl that is closer to the TV. If I look across the table at a coworker that I'm having a conversation with, it's going to maybe switch to the other owl that's further down the table to give you that, you know, again, make you as that remote attendee feel like you're in the middle of it all. And again, this is all, it's all automagical. Nothing that the user needs to know how to do. Yeah. This is very much like the producer's box I just described, which is, you know, if we were watching a live event or any live event, sporting, award show, music concert, whatever, 
there's somebody, it's, it's a person that's choosing to sh- what you are going to show somebody. Yeah. That would be a unique experience for, I would say this to the consumer of that experience, they would be none the wiser because they, they, they're used to that experience in the past. They've seen it. It's, it's going to be entertaining, interactive, as you suggested, it's going to be way easier to pay attention. But to the, well, what will then happen is like, if you don't have it, then it's like, well, why don't I get this? You know, what's going on? Exactly. <laughs> it becomes the new standard. It becomes a, a new standard of consumption. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Like at first it's magical and then it becomes completely commonplace and expected. And, you know, this is, this is the life of technology. Yeah. I think, uh, I forget if it was Rodney Brooks or someone else said, you know, a robot is a robot until it works. And then it's just, you know, then it's just a, an appliance. Um, and so right now we're in that magical phase. So then to build, build off that a little more, tell you a little bit more about some of our other products. Uh, another one that just came out is called the Whiteboard Owl. Okay. And the Whiteboard Owl is, a, is another camera that's designed very specifically to be able to capture the content that's on the whiteboard and show mm. that to the remote users. So right now, what's another pain people have is like, hey, even with the best video equipment, you're having a meeting, then people go in the room, go and start using the whiteboard and the people on the remote end have no idea what's going on. That's right. Well, I'm going to give you a, a little feature request. It's probably already on your roadmap, but I can see this being useful as well, which is like, it's probably going to get to the point where Owl is like gong, uh, where I invite Owl to my meeting because so many meetings now people share their screens. So they're sharing their screens and I'm looking at a presentation potentially. So like this is for people that are not live and they watch video recordings of the meeting they would mm. then be able to see what people were actually looking at because they were on their screens. Oh, that's, yeah, that's cool. I like it. All right. We're going to put that on the roadmap and put, it uh, up. put your name next to it. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, man, it was awesome having you on the show. It's one of those products where when you look at it, it like I can see how someone might think it's just a cutesy camera. They not, don't quite understand it. So hopefully people listening to this episode got a chance to understand why it's important because we are obviously in a place where we're a lot more people doing hybrid work. It's pretty fascinating how you're approaching it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, for, for all the folks listening, like, you know, just focus back on that mission. We need to make hybrid meetings as natural and successful as in-person meetings. It just, it has to happen. No doubt about it. Now, Mark, before you go, though, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Mark, this is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work. So our audience can get to know you a little better. Are you ready? I am ready. This sounds fun. All right. You're a builder. You were building vacuums. Now you're building cameras. What was the first thing you engineered or built? All right. So this is this is actually an easy one. And I think a fun one, at least fun for me. So I'm going to take you all the way back to the 70s. Um, so <laughs> my, my, it starts with my father, who is a high school physics teacher. And um, in, in the late 70s, uh, his school district bought some Commodore pets which I don't know if you remember that. It's a very old computer. The monitor was built into the bottom of the, the computer part. It had a tape deck, was the only drive it had. Anyway, they allowed teachers to check them out on the weekends and bring them home and use them. So my father yeah. brought home the Commodore PET, and that is how I learned to spell my last name and my home address. I just kept typing it over and over again on that black and green screen. That wasn't exactly creating anything, but it kind of it leads up to where it did happen. So the next thing that happened was the school district got Apple II computers in the early 80s. And my father would bring those home for, you know, for the kids, us kids to uh, play around on. And I mean, I was probably, I guess at that time, I was probably about eight years old and I started writing text adventures. So that was the, the very first thing I did was Apple Basic 
start writing text adventures. The next thing I did was start making them graphical adventures. Nothing very fancy. It was like giant blocky, like fixed images. And then the thing I remember doing after that, um, I remember because it was a total failure. Um, I wanted to get into like some cool computer graphics and so not just like static blocks of, of color. I remember making this helicopter that would fly across the screen using sprites, but I didn't know about double buffering at the time. And so it flickered the whole time it was moving across the screen and I could never figure out how to get it to not flicker. And, you know, you know, fast forward to the future, the answer is the double buffer, but at like, you know, 10 years old, I didn't know about that. Anyway, so software <laughs> was the first thing, was the first thing I built. Your mind at 10, I mean, I was like, I was definitely still wondering which brands of glue tasted better. So, I mean, your, <laughs> your mind, you were operating on a different plane than me. How about what's more fun for you? Do you like building physical things or do you like building software? Ah, so I, I, lo I love both, but physical is very important to me. Um, it's something that a little more background on me. So I actually went to undergraduate for mechanical engineering, yeah. even though I was you know, teaching myself to program when I was a little kid. It was only in the early 2000s when, um, when I ran into iRobot and robotics you know, became a real thing that I realized, oh, I really want to do software for physical things. The reason <laughs> I didn't do software you know, undergrad was because you know, that was the mid-90s. Mid you know, the software then, it was like, you know, it was very databases and behind the scenes things, you know, maybe some rudimentary graphics, nothing, you know, all that exciting. And it was all on the computer. As soon as I learned about robots, I was like, oh, you can write software that makes things move around in the real world. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, when I, that's when I realized where my passion was. It really is all about uh, sensors and the software that lets them interpret the world and then do smart things. Oh, I like that. Well, Mark, it was awesome having you on the show today. Thanks for sharing your journey, your epiphany in the discovery and creation <laughs> now of Owl Labs. I'm bullish on the product. I definitely think that this is one of those things where it's one, it's like anything else. You Maybe you don't think you need it. And then, of course, if you start using meetings that use it, then it's like, oh, dang, that's way better than my other experiences. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks very much. It was great.